0: So this morning, let me say a few things before I get into the Word with you. A few weeks ago, I used the word immaculate conception when we were referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. A good brother brought it to my attention. That was a mistake. It was a misspeak. It would have been better for me to say the miraculous conception or the holy conception or something along those lines. But immaculate conception is a term that the Catholic Church uses to refer to Mary's conception. And they believe that Mary was actually born without sin. She was born without the stain of sin, which is not a biblical position because there's no biblical evidence for that. So let me just state that now and make that correction. The Immaculate Conception is something that the Protestant church does not hold to, but we certainly hold to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And he was born sinless. Second, a few weeks, or actually not a few weeks ago, last week, I was speaking about the kingdom of God and will continue to make reference to the kingdom of God because. The Bible makes reference to it, especially when you read through the Gospels. There is this book called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. And if you're not a reader, I would encourage you to change that because I think that's one of the problems with this generation is that we've moved away from reading. So unless it's in audio format, we don't embrace it. And reading is the way that our minds are changed so that our hearts are changed so that our lives are changed. Reading is critical to the believer. It's critical to anybody. I remember even just being in the corporate world and I was told over and over again, leaders are readers. If you want to be a leader in this company, Jeremy, you better continue to read about how to manage and how to work with people and so on and so forth. Well, it's no different in the Christian faith. If you want to lead your family, if you want to lead in the Christian life, you need to be a reader. You need to read the Word of God and you need to read books about the Word of God. This book is like no other, The Greatness of the Kingdom, and it will open your eyes to the fullness of what the Word of God says about the Kingdom of God instead of taking little chunks of it at a time. So, I think that's it for my announcements. Is that it, babe? Did I get everything? No? Yes? Okay, good. Just checking with the wife. Guess what, Jason? We're way behind schedule, so I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, because of all days, yeah, I needed those five minutes, brother. Um, have you ever been misunderstood or maligned? We're looking at Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. We're just moving through the gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue Bibles. And If you turn to page 838, that will bring you right to Mark chapter 3. It's a large section we're looking at today, so we're not going to read the entire text. We're just going to read through the text and then expand upon it. So have you ever been misunderstood or maligned, beloved? Maligned is someone who, when you're maligned, it means someone has intentionally tried to hurt you with false accusations. That's what maligned is. So it's probably a better question to ask this. How many times have you been misunderstood or maligned in your life? Christianity over the centuries has been and continues to be misunderstood and maligned but that should be no shock to us shock to us or surprise since the true author and master of Christianity himself while he was on this earth was misunderstood and maligned malign by those you would expect to have understood him and defended him And that brings me to another, there was one more announcement, I saw it in my notes. We're going to be getting a course called Simply Christianity this Tuesday. It's going to start this Tuesday. It's a five-week course. We are going to be having it in David and Liza's home over here. They're going to be hosting it. If you're interested, it's basically a course that takes you through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to meet every Tuesday for five weeks. And it expands upon what is Christianity and what it is not. What is Christianity and what is not? If you have any interest in that, you need to talk to me after the service today because we have a limitation on how many people can be there. And it will begin this Tuesday. If for some reason you can't make it this Tuesday, it would be okay to miss the first one, but it would not be okay to miss more than one because otherwise you'd kind of miss, there's only five weeks. So talk to me. It's called Simply Christianity. It's a great five-week course. It takes us through the entire Gospel of Luke every Tuesday for five weeks. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. So this morning, if you're looking at your notes, we're going to reflect on Jesus' revealing responses to the rising resistance to His ministry so that we might recognize His true nature and the true nature of being His disciple. His disciple. We're going to look at first the rising resistance and we're going to jump right into it. The rising resistance that came from His family. If you... Are new with us, you can look at the inside of the bulletin and on the left hand side is an outline so you can follow along and you know when I'll be finished. That's kind of the idea. (laughs) Oh, he's almost done. That's what outlines are for, really. By the way, if you're new with us, I just want to, Tim said it, but I want to remind you again, please fill this card out, take it to the back table, and we have a gift for you before you leave. We'd love to make sure you get that (laughs) gift. So let's look at the text. The first resistance comes from his family. They basically say that Jesus is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Read it with me. Then he went home, that is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus returns, basically, to where he is staying. That is in Capernaum. He's possibly staying in Simon and Andrew's home. Simon is also called Peter. Remember that Jesus never had his own home. He's originally from Nazareth. If you read Matthew 8, chapter 20, he tells someone who wants to follow him, I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus never set up permanent residence while he was here on earth. Why would he? He was on a mission to die. As has been the pattern, the crowds quickly flocked to him as soon as they heard that he was back home or where he was staying in Simon and Andrew's home. And as a result, the demands of the multitudes, we're told here in Mark, kept him and his disciples, and his disciples, look back at the text, verse 20, it says, so that they, they is a reference to his disciples, the NIV, if you have that translation, actually gives you that word, disciples, the disciples and he, could not eat. The crowds kept them from eating. Word of this gets back to his family in Nazareth, about 20 miles from Capernaum where Jesus was. Now look at verse 21. It says that it was his family that heard it. The Greek words for family are literally, and I'll explain why I'm telling you this, are literally this, those with him. Those with him. In fact, well, I'll talk about that in a second. Those are the words. Those with him. Those with him is an idiom. An idiom. I've said this before, but let me say it again. An idiom is a phrase that everyone in the culture would understand, but the words in the phrase don't necessarily explain what it means. I'll give you an example. If I asked you, do you have a nest egg? If any of you probably knew what that meant, you'd probably say, no, not anymore. A nest egg is money that you put away for a rainy day. Ooh, another idiom. Putting money away for a rainy day. It's not that you're actually waiting for a rainy day, but when tough times come, nest egg, all right, that's an idiom. And in the same sense, this was an idiom, those with him. And what it meant was kinsmen or blood relatives. That's what it meant. Now, it was also used to describe generally close friends. Close friends. If you have a NASB, which is New American Standard Bible, or a New King James Version Bible, and you look back at your text right now, you're going to see that it reads his own people. His own people heard this, which is closer to those with him. But in light of the context, this is best understood to understand it in its most literal sense, which is his family, his blood relatives. Okay? Does that make sense? especially in light of verse 31. Just pop down to verse 31 of chapter 3. And what happens is is that there will be a break in the story here, but the story will pick back up. And it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. What you have going on is the family hears about what's happening to Jesus, the fact that he and his disciples are not eating because of the crowds. They take off and they head towards Capernaum they eventually show up and the story is picked back up or the narrative is picked back up in verse 31. There, Mark describes them as as his mother and his brothers. So we know it is a reference to his family. His family, okay? I emphasize that because if you have a King James Version, which is the original, I don't know, if does anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. If you have a King James Version, it actually says friends. And some people have understood it that way. But it is not his friends, beloved, who are calling him crazy. It is his family. That's what's so shocking. It's Jesus' family. His own blood relatives are saying, this guy, my son, my brother, I think he's lost his mind. He's not even stopping to eat. So this really adds to the shock factor. Resistance to Jesus' ministry is even coming from his own family. That's the point that Mark is making. His own family. You ever had that experience? (laughs) Those, no doubt, very dear to his heart. That's probably the hardest, isn't it? I mean, friends. eh, Friends come and go. It's hard to even know who your true friends are. But family, when family resists you, that's hard and opposes you. It's very hard. The text says that the family went out or left where they were. And like I said, that was Nazareth. They went out to Capernaum to seize him, is what the text says. To seize him. (laughs) The word for seize is used in other places in Mark. In fact, all throughout Mark. And it's always in regard to arresting someone. To arresting someone. You can see that in chapter 6, verse 17, or chapter 12, verse 12. There's other places also. Basically what's going on is the family believed that an intervention was necessary because Jesus had apparently become a danger to himself and his disciples. A picture of that would be like an addict, right? If you've ever had a close friend or someone in your family who's an addict and they eventually stop making good decisions, in fact they make decisions that are harmful to themselves and those around them, and so sometimes the family will do what isn't called an intervention, which it means they capture him and her and take them off and have them locked up somewhere where they'll hopefully get better. That is exactly what's going on. We're going to seize Jesus. Now this response is understandable. It is understandable if He is not the Son of God and He is not Christ. Okay? If He is just a man. That makes total sense. But... If He is divine, if He is the Son of God, if He is the Christ, if He is those things, then you need to believe and his family should have believed that he knew exactly what he was doing. There would be no reason to question him or to wonder if he was making good decisions. In fact, they would know that he was on a mission from God. From God. Why would you interrupt that? In fact, any attempt, well-meaning or not, to prohibit Jesus from His ministry is equal to opposing God Himself if He is the Son of God, if He is the Christ, and He is and was. This opposition to Jesus, beloved, when you read the text, it is unexpected. That's what Mark wants you to come across with. He wants you to be shocked. And it reveals to us a misunderstanding and or a lack or lapse of faith about Jesus' real identity and mission. One commentator said it like this. The two groups, and we're going to look at the second group in a second, the two groups who should have recognized Jesus first, his own family and teachers of the law, or the scribes, are both blind to his true identity. That's the reality. Second, the resistance first comes from his family. Second, it comes from the scribes. And this brings us to our point here. He is possessed by Satan. That's what they say. This group, unlike his family, did not come with the intention of saving Jesus. But their intention was to decrease his popularity among the people through a smear campaign. Do you know what a smear campaign is? The politicians do it to each other all the time. They sling mud at each other to try to take the other one down, and usually there's no truth. It's unfounded. They make stuff up to hurt the other party. Look back at the text, Mark chapter three, verse twenty-two. And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem, were saying, "He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons." He cast out the demons. They make two horrific accusations here. One is about his person or his nature, his character. And the other is about his work or what he was doing. The word saying there, they were saying, it's in the imperfect tense. And that's just a reference to the original language. And what that tells us is is that they were continually saying this. That's what that means. When you hear someone say this was in the imperfect tense, it means it was ongoing. It was not something that was said once. Like they didn't just hear him once say, hey, this guy's possessed by Beelzebul. No, they continue to promote this idea. They claim he's possessed or controlled is what they're saying. Controlled by Beelzebul. Now this is a strange name. And some scholars, because they're not sure, but they, some believe that it means the Lord of the Dwelling. Literally, the Lord of the dwelling. That is, the dwelling of evil spirits. This word, Beelzebul. It was a name used for Satan who was himself the prince of demons or the lord of demons or the lord of the evil kingdom. Okay, This accusation that they make against Christ, beloved, it's not based on any evidence. Right? They didn't have a test That they could take, or they didn't give him a lie detector test or anything. They just make the accusation. It's really a product of inventing the worst possible thing that they could say about Jesus that might cause people to run from him instead of run to him. That's what they're looking to do thin out the crowds, decrease his popularity. In our day, it would be like us falsely accusing someone of being a child rapist. True or not, you would start to second-guess them. You would wonder, should I be hanging around this individual? Additionally, this accusation is not made by some stranger off the street. That's what you need to notice. Who's it being made by? The scribes. The scribes were experts in the law of God. They were the ones that told the people how to apply the law of God. They knew the Scriptures, the very Scriptures that prove that this Jesus is actually the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One. Those very Scriptures they're experts in. These are the guys claiming and making these accusations. The second is just as bad. He is empowered by Satan. First, he is possessed by Satan. Second, he is empowered by Satan. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 3, the second part of it. They say he is possessed by Beelzebul, Satan, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. So second, they claim that he does what he does, that is cast out demons, by the power of Satan himself, the prince of demons. That's what they're saying. They want the people to believe, if you can understand this, that Jesus' ministry of mercy, of rescue, of hope, is satanically fueled and Jesus the Holy One is in full cooperation with the evil one. That's what they want their hearers to believe. That's the accusation. Now notice that they don't try to deny the reality that He is driving demons out you notice that? They don't say He's not doing what He's doing. They don't say He's not setting people free from their bondage and related illnesses, which is exactly what Jesus was accomplishing by casting out demons. It's an undeniable fact to all who witnessed Jesus' work on earth. They can't deny it. So, they accuse Him of doing it through the power of Satan. In fact, in a parallel account in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Don't turn there, just listen. This is a parallel account of the same story. But Matthew includes the fact that it was an exorcism that Jesus did that started the scribes accusing Him of doing it through the power of Satan. Just listen to the text. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Him, that is Jesus, and He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people, the crowds, were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? See, they're getting it. That's a messianic title. The Son of David means this is the one that was promised to us. Could this be Him? But when the Pharisees heard it, Pharisees, scribes, many of the scribes were Pharisees, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Let's just stop this train of thought right now that they would even consider that this is the Messiah. And let's make an outrageous accusation. Hopefully it will drive them away. Mark left this exorcism that we just talked about out of his account, apparently to focus more on the opposition and resistance to Jesus' ministry. So that's why I believe it's not included. In an attempt to discredit Jesus before the crowds, the scribes resorted to labeling the true Son of God as having a secret relationship with Satan that empowered him to do the undeniable miracles he was performing. That's what's going on. That's what we just read. To these damaging and diabolical charges, Jesus does respond. So that brings us to his revealing responses. First, he responds in the text to the scribes. To the scribes. And I've titled this point, How Can Satan Cast Out Satan? Because that's his question. Let's read the text. Mark chapter 3. Look back at verse 23. We'll be reading through 27. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. (laughs) Now I can think of many different ways that you and I might respond to slander or unwarranted harmful words. And this is probably not it. If you think about it. Think about it. Have you ever, how have you responded to slander in the past? Did you get angry? Did you slander back? Did you wish the worst? Jesus, this is what Jesus does. He calls his accusers over. And gently but surely shows them the illogical and unreasonable nature of their accusations. That's what He does. He spoke to them in parables. That's what the text tells us. A parable, as I've said before, just simply is using well-known illustrations or word pictures that they would be familiar with, that they could understand, to help prove the point that their claim, their accusation, was entirely irrational, and did not hold up to scrutiny. That's what he does. He uses logic, world pic- word pictures that they could relate to, and he engages them with a question, as he often does. Someone once told me, and this is just good for you men to, and women to remember, that questions prick the conscience, but accusations sear the heart. What that means is is that When you get into, when you've got to confront somebody, the better way to confront them is to ask questions that will draw out from within them the answer that you're looking to get across to them so that they come up with it themselves. And usually that'll create a conversation. But when you make accusations, their defense mechanism goes up and their heart becomes hardened and they can't hear you anymore. So, Jesus, this is how he operated questions. He would ask questions. Eventually their heart became so hard he made accusations against them. But in the beginning he's asking questions. The other reason I think he did this is think about it. Think about the picture that's going on. These are pretty heavy what they've just said about Jesus. If he had lashed out at them and he had every right to do that. The Son of God had the right to strike them even. Physically, verbally, he had the right for what they were saying. But he didn't. And I think it was because of the crowd. He needed to dismantle their claim first. If he just went after them, that claim would still be hovering in the air. It would still be in their minds. There would still be this unchallenged rumor floating around. But what Jesus does is he gives them the intellectual ammunition that they need to destroy the speculation at once. That's what he does here so that they hear Jesus and they say, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard The scribes, what they just said. How could that possibly be true? That's what he does. The idea is this, beloved. This is how Jesus responds at the text we just read. If Satan, this is what Jesus is saying through his word picture, his illustration, his parable. If Satan is now working against himself via me, Jesus, if that's what's going on, by having me undo what he has done because that's what you're saying, then he is destined for destruction. (laughs) Why would Satan intentionally undermine himself? Why would he do that? And if that is what he is doing, then his rule or authority over the kingdom of evil will certainly come to an end. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the argument he's making. The same would be true for any kingdom or household for that matter. That operated with opposing goals and purposes. Some of you husbands and wives know what I'm talking about. If you operate with opposing goals and purposes, it's very hard to make progress in your home. It's the same in a company. If the company operates with opposing goals and purposes, they aren't going to get very far. Eventually, they will fail. They will fall. We... Have a term that we all know that he that Jesus could have used today that we're familiar with, I think, and it's this: "United we stand, divided we fall." Right after 9/11, that was, you know, we started throwing that around everywhere. "United we stand, divided we fall." We need to come together as a country and destroy the enemy. We understand the principle of it, right? It's the same here. What they're saying is the enemy is against himself. It makes no sense. Jesus now moves from the hypothetical, this idea that Satan is using Jesus to work against Satan, to the truth about the relationship that Jesus does have to Satan and Jesus' ministry to the people. Look back at verse 27. He says, you think this is what it is? I'm going to tell you how it really is between me and Satan. But... No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Beloved, what Jesus is saying here is Satan is the strong man. Meaning that that word strong, I think it's under-translated. It means powerful, almighty, great in strength. He is is not to be taken lightly. Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. Yes. Yes. Jesus is the stronger man. He has entered Satan's kingdom or house not because he was invited as a guest, but he has broken in to overpower him and restrain him so that he can ransack steal, take back his possessions. That is, to free the poor human victims from Satan's grip. That is what Jesus is doing. He is not cooperating with Satan, as they suggest, but he is working against him. And you better believe that if Satan could stop the taking of his possessions... He would do it, but he cannot overcome the strength of his intruder. That's the picture. That's the illustration. And Satan's ultimate and final plunder awaits the day when Jesus the King returns to this earth to establish His kingdom. Revelation chapter 20. Read it at home. (laughs) So after destroying their accusation and bringing light upon the situation, now Jesus issues a very serious warning to His opponents. And that brings us to verse 28 and this issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Truly, I say to you, chapter 3, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Now people focus on the warning in this section. They immediately go to it and they skip over the amazing grace that we just read in verse 28. Let me read it for you again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is not an assertion by Jesus. He is not suggesting that every man in the world will be forgiven, that there will be universal forgiveness. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that forgiveness is available for all, meaning all classes, all kinds of sins, every kind, and blasphemies of men, except one. One very specific blasphemy. So every other blasphemy and sin, it can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. But there is one, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I want you to just follow my thought with me for a second. So I know there was no coffee this morning, and I apologize for that, but stick with me. It has a specific historical context. Remember we read from Second Chronicles this morning and I said people take that verse and they rip it out of its context and begin applying it all over the place. Just like that verse had a historical context, it means what it means in its context, this warning means what it means in its context, in its surrounding passages, in the book it exists in. People have taken this out and begin applying it to all kinds of situations, saying people have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, they are not forgivable. They are, they are forever condemned. So we, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here, because it's a pretty severe warning, that there could be such a thing that God would not forgive. He had a specific historical con, con, context. So let's look at that. By the way, let me just say this. It is not, right away, let me say this. It is not using God's name in vain. Or using Jesus Christ as a curse word. Those things are vile. They should not be a part of the Christian vocabulary or speech. And people do, I'll just say this, people do say, oh my, Right? God, they put that at the end of that or they use Jesus Christ in a way that you would use a curse word. That's not appropriate for the, for the believer. We need to have a little more reverence for His name. But that does not elevate itself to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Neither does at some point in your life you told God maybe you hated Him. I've heard people say this. I'm not sure God can ever forgive me. I told God after some tragic event I hate you god i 'm afraid i've committed the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is not what god what Jesus Christ is talking about here. There is forgiveness, even if you told God that you hated him. The religious leaders here, beloved, are the ones that are committing this act. The scribes these were not atheists, these were not people that were confused about Jesus or Denied the supernatural and only believed that natural explanations were, were what accounted for everything. These are people who knew the Scriptures. So that's the first point you've got to see. They knew the Scriptures. They were not confused about what the Scriptures said. They're the ones that made this accusation. Teachers of God's law. Very familiar with it and what it said about the coming Messiah. Beyond that, they were personal witnesses to Jesus' Spirit-empowered ministry on earth. And this Spirit-empowered ministry testified, testified to Jesus' true identity, to who He was according to the Scriptures, the ones that the scribes were theoretically experts in. And by the way, they were. They were. They knew better. But instead of submitting to Jesus as Lord, they deliberately and with knowledge, and you can write this down, John 11, forty-five 45-48, if you want to look it up later, for the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders in knowing what's going on but not wanting to obey or submit to Him. They deliberately, grossly misrepresented the nature and the work of the Spirit by attributing the Spirit's work to Satan and in effect calling what is good evil that's what they did they called what is good and holy evil and defiled and there's a warning against that in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 you can write that down also why did they do this in order to turn others away from Jesus in order to preserve their own authority in order to resist becoming his disciple, his follower, calling him Lord and Master. By the way, this was not a one-time event. It was not as if they slipped and said, well, he does those things by the power of Beelzebul. Boom! Done! You're done. You've just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can never be forgiven. No, the text tells us they continued, remember, to say these things. It was a position of their heart. They had predetermined that they would slander Jesus Christ, by slandering the Holy Spirit who was empowering His ministry, ultimately slandering God Himself. They determined to do that. One commentator says, if you've ever been afraid or fearful that somehow you have committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which personally, I, don't, I think it had a historical context. I think it would be very difficult for you or anybody to commit that sin today. But if you're afraid that you've committed it, if you're terrified, if it tortures your soul, then that is proof in itself that you have not committed it. And he says that because a person so insensitive to the Spirit, as these scribes were, that he attributes what is of God to demonic origin, will not be conscious of having committed the ultimate transgression. There is no repentance going on here. They are hard-hearted and they are seared and confirmed in their hard hardness. so much so that they would be willing to attribute demonic activity to the work of Jesus Christ. And for them, they had or were in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This brings us back to the original story that Mark started this section with and the final revealing response on our outline. Jesus' family, remember, had heard reports about Jesus' hectic ministry and determined he had lost his mind, so they set out to find him and to take him into their custody. This is our last point on your outline. How does Jesus respond to his family? Well, he responds with another question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Let's look at the text. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. By the way, that word, we've talked about this before, but it always implies to gain control over. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my mother well he is my brother and sister and mother now if we didn't have verse 34 we might start wondering if jesus had lost his mind right if it just ended there i don't know who are my mother and my brothers they're outside jesus did you have amnesia do you remember they raised you you grew up with them So, But we have verse 34, thankfully, so we know that Jesus has not lost His mind. He's not disrespecting. I want to make that point. He's not disrespecting His mom and brothers or avoiding them by pretending they don't exist. I don't know who my mother and brothers are. I can't see you. He's not doing that. But He is also not affirming them in their misunderstanding or, quote, rescue mission. He's not affirming them. In fact, he uses this interruption as he regularly does, as we've already seen, in his ministry to teach a very important lesson to those that were sitting around him and to us by extension. The lesson is this. The lesson is this. That Jesus' true family, his true family, those who have an authentic, real Relationship with Him. Those who are really His disciples. That family is made up of all those without distinction. That means regardless of age or gender or race. All those without distinction whose lives are patterned by obedience to God His Father. Not Resistance, not opposition, but surrender. Surrender. So let me be clear. Jesus is not saying here, you are adopted into His family because of obedience to God. That is not what He is saying. He's not saying, if you are good, then you can be a part of My family. No, he is saying those who are a part of his spiritual family are marked or characterized by submission to what God desires. And by the way, beloved, his desire is found in his word. His word. Now, people will take a DNA test. You see this regularly on some very strange shows where they're trying to prove who the father is. They'll take a DNA test to prove if there is a relationship between the father and the said child. Right? We're familiar with that? If they're related. The DNA test to prove that you belong to Jesus, that you are a part of His family, is obedience to Him. That's it. Do you want to know if you're part of Jesus' family? Jesus it's very simple. We we make this bigger than it needs to be. It is obedience to him. We complicate this issue. It's very simple. You want to know if you're truly one of Jesus' family members? You will obey his father. And his father wants you to obey his son. It's that simple. It will be a part of your life. It will include, beloved, to some degree, and we're not talking about perfection. Please. Please. Nobody. Nobody can obtain perfection, but there's a pattern of obedience. It would include these things a love for God, a repentance from sin, genuine humility, devotion to God's glory, continual prayer, selfless love, separation from the world and spiritual growth. So let me say it again. No obedience. No relationship. Not a true disciple. That's what Jesus is saying. And then let me add to that that no one, not you or me, is able to do the will of God unless the Spirit of God is empowering them. And only those for us today who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have received the Holy Spirit who makes God-honoring obedience even possible. So let me apply this just a little bit. And then we'll have a time of reflection and a very good closing song. If you're here today and... You may not even have questioned this, but I know that there are some here today who are not part of Jesus' family. They are not, which means they are not a Christian. They may say they're a Christian. Listen, that's no different than saying, he's my daddy. You understand? And the daddy says, ah, no, that is not my child. We'll need to get a DNA test to prove that. This is the test. He's my daddy. But I don't obey him. He's not your daddy. He's not your Lord. He's not your master. He's not your Savior. Take inventory of your life. You do this for yourself. Because you really know. Is it characterized by obedience? Or is it characterized by disobedience and resistance to the Lord? And you need to stop kidding yourself and seek His salvation. If... It is marked by disobedience. By refusing to surrender or submit to Him. Seek His salvation and the result will be a transformed life. And that transformed life is what gives us the peace of knowing that we are truly a part of His family and allows us to withstand the storms of life. You want to know why people are so freaked out when the storms of life hit them? They have never had the assurance of obedience. So they never have the fullness of knowing that they are really a part of Jesus' family. They haven't seen prolonged obedience in their life. So they're still questioning, and rightly so, whether or not they're His. Because when Jesus saves, He does not just save from hell, but He saves and transforms to a new life And He saves from a life dominated and mastered and controlled by sin. Do you understand? That's what He saves us to. That's what I want Him to save me to. Why would I want Him to save me from hell and all of its demonic activity and yet still live like the devil? Right? Okay. So for you, think about that ask god to reveal it to you because we deceive ourselves ask god to show you in your own heart am i a child of your son am i part of your family am i a true follower a disciple or am i something else reveal that to me god reveal that to me and if you through that process understand that you are not part of His family, guess what? You don't have to stay that way. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. They will be saved. Alright, Christian, guess what? If you are part of Jesus' family, and you know it, you know that you know that you know, you know what? It's going to manifest itself in obedience to God. Being a part of Jesus' family will manifest itself in obedience to God. And guess what that's going to result in? I don't know. People misunderstanding and maligning you just as they did our Master. Just as they did our Master. In fact, you can count on it. You can bet on it. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be to some degree misunderstood. They will be to some degree maligned. They will be and are right now being killed and harmed physically even. Maybe not in the U.S., but it goes on. We just don't hear about it or don't pay attention to it. I don't know. But right now, people are suffering because they are living for the king. And how do people know they're living for the king? Because their life is marked by obedience. Not just being a good boy or girl, but proclaiming his name. You understand what I'm saying? Proclaiming his name because he's called us to that. And for that, they are persecuted. John says in John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. If you were of the world, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also... What? Where is that? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Stop right there. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a guarantee. If you're a follower of me, if you're part of my family, guess what? This is the kind of treatment you're going to get. You're going to be regularly misunderstood and maligned, and you will be persecuted. Now, this is why for us it is so important that you know, that I know, and believe that the one I am following, the one you are following, Christian, and suffering for and being persecuted for is not some lunatic or demon-possessed deceiver. i got to know that. If I'm going to fully surrender my life, if you are going to fully surrender your life, you need to be fully confident that He is worthy of your life. I am not going to do the things that This book is asking me to do if Jesus is just some man. Do you understand? If he's just some man, why would I, why would I surrender myself to him? And why would I forego or come under persecution for defending him and proclaiming him if he's just some man? Indeed, if he was a lunatic, I would not. But if he is Lord, if He is Christ, if He is the Son of God, if He is God in the flesh, then it makes absolutely no sense for me not to surrender my life to Him fully and to come under persecution willingly. That's the connection. It is His true identity that will inspire me and give me the strength to press on and obey even in the midst and slaughter of persecution that will come, that is a promise, that is a guarantee, because He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings.